This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thank you for listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, or where people who have got something interesting to say about journalism sometimes get a look in. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology Sydney and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Today we're talking to someone who is a recovering journalist, a pollster, a columnist, a media commentator, a spin merchant, and the author of an excellent new book called Webtopia, in which the subtitle is The World Wide Web of Tech and How to Make the Net Work. And that's two words, net work. How indeed. Welcome to the show, Peter Lewis. Thanks for having me, Pete. It's a great pleasure. So uh, for those of you who don't follow Peter Lewis's many iterations in the public space, he is the head of Essential Media Communications, uh, which is kind of a PR outfit for the left. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I'd like to say campaigning and strategic comms, but if you call it PR, I guess I'll sort of settle for that. You'll settle for (laughs) that? Okay. And the home of the Essential Poll. And before we get to the book, Pete, I just did want to ask you a bit about polls. So, in essence, are they dead? Look, I think they're wounded, um, and I think we're in recovery at the moment. And um, there is a degree of soul-searching going on within the um, fraternity of pollsters. Um, There was clearly an intelligence failure that had profound consequences in the lead-up to the federal election, and it's easy to play defensive and say that, oh, we were in the margin of error because 51-49 could be 51-49 the other way. Mm. But the fact that the polls had consistently put Labor ahead for three years really did shape the narrative, but more importantly, the way that the progressive movement approached the election campaign. So we're taking stock, and I think... There's three levels um, that we're reviewing. One is the quality of the samples we collect. Mm -hmm. The second is the way we weight preferences. So um, one of the real um, mistakes, I think, was to overestimate the amount of One Nation and Palmer preferences that would go back to Labor. Basically, none of them did. But the third and the most profound thing that we're really thinking through is what we do with the disengage. So particularly the Tea Party Preferred is a creature of American politics where voting is... um, Voluntary and Australia, of course, voting is compulsory. So even if you don't have any view at all, you've still got a legal responsibility to turn up and vote. Mm, Um, mm. What we do as pollsters for people that can't say who you might even 
lean towards, we just take them out of the sample because it's inconvenient. They're not, and in, it, yeah. it's noisy and it gets in the way. And they're not um, engaged. Yeah. Um, but what that actually does is skew the results. So 5149 was never 5149. Even the Tuesday before the election, if we'd put the people that couldn't answer the question in, we would have been saying Labor's ahead 47-45 with 8% undeclared. Imagine how that's a different narrative and how you approach it differently. So hmm. we are we are kind of licking our wounds at the moment. Um, our partners, the Guardian, have decided that we won't start publishing um, the party polling until a bit later in this year, but I'm seriously looking at what it could look like that we move away from 2PP to keeping the undeclared in. Because if you think about it, a step back from the stats, what we're doing is disenfranchising the disengaged, which is exactly what the political process does. And then we wonder why mm. we get results that Indeed. surprise well, we, us. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're privileging the people who are engaged with politics. Yeah. And when, in fact, the elections are decided that people are not. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the campaign that worked yeah. was brilliantly focused at people that did not know what was going on. So, mm. Mm. you know, yeah, great point. Great insight. learning. Okay, big learnings. One thing just before we move on, uh, the Australia's Institute, Richard Dennis, recently made the point that one of the reasons why maybe people have fallen out of favour with the polls is that Australia is no longer a place where uniform swings happen, you know. So a national poll, in, a, in one sense, is obsolete. Yeah, what, I, what's look, your take I, on I, that? I, 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 I take Richard's point, um, but I never took polling to be the political scoreboard that maybe some in the media did. So you, you see the way the news polls being reported, and even still is, like this week's news poll, which yep. apparently the softening of 2PP was because of a backlash against New South Wales abortion laws. <laughs> like, spare me. Um, the purpose of um, a political poll is to be part of a broader bunch of intelligence about where the election is. And I think the, the intelligence failure of the last election wasn't just about polling, it was about um, the breakdown of institutions that used to be ways of giving an indication of where people were, um, the breakdown of the media, a lot of the themes that I, I look at in the book, I think in a way, the problem was polling was all that was left and it was a very low quality abstraction because we'd lost all the other ways we used to have of understanding what's going on in our world and fragmentation of different communities is part of that. Yep. Um, yep. But, you know... I mean, the other part of polling, which you just touched on, in a way, is how they have been traditionally been used by the news media, right? So, you know, you can load lots of things in a poll, as you just mentioned. I mean, I've, yeah. I've written and commissioned many, many polls in my life. And it's a two-way um, right. relationship of abuse because the third parties that are trying to buy their way into the media, rather than writing a policy paper or engaging a, a real community network, we can do a robo-poll for 1300 bucks, and that's going to be good enough to get a headline in, you know, mainstream news media. So the devaluing of what a poll was and what a poll meant was kind of going mm. on it on both sides because it was cheap and cheerful for all of us. Yeah, I mean, so, 1300 bucks is money well spent, right? I mean, it's cheap. Well, it's a cheap for a headline. Yeah. Like, you know. Get you in, dial you into the debate. Compare that with buying a, you know, quarter page ad. Yeah. And it looks Let's like not. news and it <laughs> smells like news. It smells like yeah. news and, and journalists write it and take it as read. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and then again, that's linked to journalists not having time to get across the issues properly. So if someone says, I've got a robo saying X, they go, well, that's that's a story. It's yeah. not a story. It's a robo poll. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, it's a critique of journalism then as much as anything else. I think we all need to be soul searching at the moment because, um, you know, whether or not you are happy with the election outcome, I think that it wasn't the finest moment in Australian democracy. Mm. 
We can do a whole new show on what were what were the finest moments in Australia. <laughs> but that's another whole show. And that it's could not be a called, short podcast. <laughs> it's not called The Fourth Estate. Let's talk about your book. So your Thank book you. is sort of a, a bit of a polemic, I, I'd, yeah. I'd argue, looking at the time before the net, the time where we are now, uh, and with all its incumbent problems, and, and pushes forward to what we think the net might be or what you think the net might be in the future. Um, there's a lot to cover, and I am mindful that this is a show about journalism, but there's a much broader critique in your book which we must touch on, and that is perhaps summed up in a phrase, phrase you use in the book, which is the web dot is dot to dot good dot to be dot true. <laughs> Why do you say that with so many bloody dots? <laughs> uh, I guess it's a new form of um, emphasis, but it really <laughs> struck me that as a society we have all been totally entranced by this amazing technological change that people of our generation had the privilege to live through and um, it was transformative Um, in its early inceptions it was radically collaborative it was going to challenge the existing structures and allow um, communities to develop organically and build power and 20 years later I don't see that being the um, end point of this process. So um, I started the book looking at that journey. It was actually, and it is a bit of a polemic, it was actually also a book about my pet political um, project, which is generational politics. As a straight, white, middle-class male, like it's the only area where I'm in a minority group, so I like to see the world through a generational lens and being a Gen Xer who just turned 50, I, I was looking at the way people's lives had changed and technology was the um, the punctuation point in mm-hmm. my life and most of the other people who I've gone through this, this sort of journey with. And the internet um, is that kind of the life before that change. I'm the last generation that will grow up and come of age in an analogue world and to make sense of what that world was like look at the promise of what was going to happen, look at the reality of where we are now, and then start doing a bit of thinking about, well, what do we need to do to, to mm. um, regain our compass a little bit? Because a lot of this is, um, you know, you talk a lot about the t- tech and you talk about the moral compass of the web, you know, the you know, say where's the morality and say deep fake porn where you can stick, you know, revenge porn, basically you can stick someone else's face on a porn star or or even something a bit more mundane like ticket sales, or, you know, can get scooped, or tickets can get scooped up and sold at inflated prices on the web. These are all reprehensible practices, but don't they all boil down to us? Isn't exactly. it really? It's humans, right? So, so it's humans have got to change. And this is the disconnect. We've embraced the technology thinking it would be a self-evident good. And I think a more rational view of looking at it is it is amoral. It is what we do with it and what we make of it. The problem we had was that the web came online came online as a self-evident good. Mm. In my mind, just at the end of the Cold War where there was the triumph of libertarianism, um, which, which morphed into... There is right. no role for government but to get out of the way. When it came to policy around so the, the internet for the, the first perfect, decade, right. it was seen as totally libertarian. The only role of government was to get everyone connected and then no rules. Um, so in that world of no rules, of course good things and bad things will happen. But on top of that, the business model now is evolving, which is very much one of it, it's 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 capitalism in its purest form. It's taking what we give through our interactions online, 
monitoring what we do because we've said it's okay in order to get free access to these platforms and then create insights that then influence us as human beings. And it sounds like, you know, a totally weird Faustian pact that we're giving ourselves up so that we can use Facebook for free. But that's kind of where it's all ended well, up. So we're fooling so, ourselves in part that we're in control in some way. Yeah, I think we get the impression that we are, well, we're in control on a level of a very surface level, mm. but we're giving up a lot of control. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, if the world was going great, I'd say, well, let's keep on going. But <laughs> I don't think it is. And I don't know, maybe it's just... It, it, I wrote this before the end of the election, so it's not it's, it's not about that. But I, 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 I point to things, the four Ds. So distraction, we we are just more addicted to our phones and we're finding yep. it hard to lift our head up and think critically. Denial, we can't find a public space to mediate our truths anymore because it doesn't exist. Um, division, whereas the idea of the web was to bring the world closer to part, it's actually pulling us into our own communities and further apart and not listening to others. And um, dis displacement, which is this whole industry that's being built off the back of the harvesting and acquisition of data, which ultimately is going to take away most of our jobs. So, like, where is the upside? So, like, <laughs> well, there isn't. When we look at it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I so so where I land is we're kind of where, um, and I wasn't around at the time, neither were you, but where we were. Um, after about 40 years of the Industrial Revolution when the kids were down the coal yeah. mines and the factories and people said, hey, this isn't working. Maybe we should put some laws in place. Yeah, and we're going we're gonna to get to yeah. the, we're gonna get to the Luddites in a minute. They yeah, yeah. But, you know, well. but, but it's true. Like the technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. And the other thing we're seeing is that it's not a World Wide Web anymore. It's being fashioned to different societies. So China has the Great Firewall of China. Russia has as extension of the um, mm. <laughs> secret repressive state. America is a hyper-capitalist model. There's interesting stuff going on in Europe where there's an attempt to, some to would say, civilise the web. And so what is the Australian web going to look like? Do mm. we Are we just a cheap offshoot of the American web? And I, I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> well, and back to, but back to the theme of this podcast, we don't even get to have those debates and come up with those... Um, make those decisions unless there is a public square in existence where we can mediate. Yeah, well, I will, that's what yeah. I just wanted to get to that. Sorry, I know we've got time. I'm trying to compress no, this. So I'm really good at giving the whole book in three yeah, minutes. Now that's the right. challenge that, And uh, Peter Lewis, thanks for your time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah great right. audience. Good night. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about you for a second because put people in context, put you in context yeah. with people. You were a uh, star industrial reporter at the Daily Telegraph in the mid-1990s. Don't uh, nod your head. I might have been the last industrial well, you, reporter. You were an industrial correspondent when such people existed in far greater numbers than they do now. Do you know we used to have an industrial writer's dinner and there was like 30 people that were coming? Right. There were How many people would turn up to that dinner now? I think it would just be you and Hannah on you his own. <laughs> it must be more than one. It must in be a more than one. And then you left uh, journalism in the mid '90s, and you t after Keating lost that election. And yeah. did you did you miss journalism? Because you do get, you know, you are a very frustrated journalist. I've always seen myself as a journalist. I just mm. don't have anywhere to work anymore. So, <laughs> I've I've found a way <laughs> through most of my life to keep writing stories. But you know. Um, and a lot of my embrace of the web in the early years. So I, I went from journalism to a political staffer in the first term of the Carr government mm -hmm. when it was actually a good government and then moved from there into working with the unions in the early sort of vestiges of them having communication strategies. Um, and out of that came um, my adaptation of the web or 
and and I and I just started playing with the technology, thinking through. Well, you know these papers that guys like Peter Frey edit aren't going to give us a free reign, so why don't we just go and find our own audiences and build our own and capacity online. to tell stories. So yep. we set up one of the first Australian political websites and really embraced what the technology could do and tried all sorts of things and some of them worked and some of them failed. At one point we set up a, a, a TV studio in the basement of Trades Hall thinking that every organisation would need its own tonight show and that one. Tell me, but you were, you were an optimist about, uh, about the I web. Was, you saw this as a great... I was a webtopian. I, I yeah. used to get up at MEAA events and say, look, the media's dying, but that doesn't matter. We're going to all be able to tell our own stories and reach our own audiences and sucked in, you poor journalists. Come and join me on the dark side and, you know, it'll all be tickety-boo. And um, it kind of was for a while, but the media was still there and we were kind of like punching up against it and 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 what was really interesting was with um workers online and i think also with Stephen main's crikey we started telling stories in a slightly different way and the media came to us and said oh yeah they're legitimate stories so we get back into the mainstream i think mm. where things have fallen down is that now there is only the periphery and there isn't much of a center anymore so you know most of the news sites are either behind paywalls or with far less resources than they used to have so um, I was totally wrong. Like I was totally wrong to get up and say it's great that the public square is collapsing and we're setting up all these villages mm. on the side. Well, you were an optimist by by nature, right? Yeah, but I miss like you know you in a way it. this mm. book is a lot of it's really a chronicle of all the things I got wrong. But one of them that was really profound was that there wasn't a role for um and not necessarily newspapers, but points of truth yeah. and we see it now like we see that if truth is just what you want it to be then how can you deal with profound well, problems no that's a, yeah okay so there's two ways of looking at that, i suppose uh you know as we all know journalists go out into the world and find truths but there's there's an infinite number of truths well, there's quite a lot of number of truths about everything so journalists have always exercised exercise choice in terms of the truths that are portrayed right Really, what the web has done is hyper hyperventilate that. Put it yeah, and and it's also rewarded, particularly for outlets that have gone to clicks. Rewarded mm. truths. You know this idea of engage, and you know the, a lot of the theories around how social media works is being fueled by anger and fueled by outrage. Um, and you look at you know, and I'm not I'm not carrying a torch for the Australian media as it existed in the, the late millennium because it was starting to fall apart anyway. News Limited was starting to become what I'd argue is um, an overly invested machine politically rather. Like there was great days of the Australian that sort of passed in the late 90s, I reckon. Um, you know the Herald was clearly struggling to resource what it could be. The ABC was coming under increasing political attack during the Howard years. So it wasn't that the media was necessarily working, that all journalists were these fine upstanding custodians, mm. but they were there and being there and this idea that there was this space where, and it wasn't just that it could produce it, but that people would come there. And that's mm. the other thing, isn't it? That it's not even a place people visit anymore, the public square, because no one knows no, they go to their where own to square, find as it. You point, well, well, they as sit point. in their own corner and it comes to them. They yeah. don't go to it. Yeah. And if it's just coming to you in your Facebook newsfeed, it's being 
it's being pushed at you from all different angles but and for all different purposes. So Yep. Yep. I mean I was you know, you would have read it too, but the recent Australian competition and consumer report on the digital platforms, essential reading for anyone, or essential listening if you want to go back a few episodes of the Fourth Estate. Um I mean, the one thing that really shines through, or not many things shine through in that report, but one stat that really stands out for me is the absolute popularity of Google and Facebook. I mean, the numbers are extraordinary. We have 25 million Australians are in that in that population. 19.2 million Australians use Google search every month. 17.3 million use Facebook. 17.6 million watch YouTube owned by Google. 11.2 million access Instagram owned by Facebook. The list goes on. So there's a considerable power and influence there, but... Australians love these tools. Yeah. They love these platforms. That's not such a bad thing, right? Indeed. And the power of these platforms is because we use them. And if we didn't use them, they wouldn't be But you're not suggesting we should powerful. stop using them, or are you? I don't know. what I, I'm At the moment, I am simply suggesting that we be mindful of the way our world's changing, what the implications of those changes are, and then start building backwards from there. There is going to be a live debate in the States about a structural separation of Facebook if Elizabeth Warren makes it through the first few rounds of primary. And do you think primaries. Elizabeth Warren will make it through the first rounds of primary? I think she'll get there. I, I, you know, I don't think she's going to come 22nd or 23rd. I think she'll be there with the last six. So that, that'll be a live debate. Mm, okay. Um, I, you know, there there are, you know, utopian ideas that you just set up a publicly, like why isn't ABC a platform that people use for social connection? Well, I think they tried that and it didn't really work. Yeah, I know. So you've got to find something that works. Mm. But at the moment, I think the problem is that the um, people that are using these platforms aren't quite aware of the cost of entry and if there is a... a, a a proper public debate about what is being yep. given up, then it starts opening itself up to us. Well, you, you have some thoughts about that in the book, right? Yeah. I mean, you have some thoughts about the role of governments. You, you kind of advocate a more interventionist stance. You want us, for instance, to have the right to be unknown. As, so this as is having... based on the European model mm. where... At, there, I, I, look, at the moment, I think the problem is we don't even have a language about what is okay and what's not okay because we've got no awareness of what's going on and... While I have just finished it, most Australians won't read The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism by Shushana Zuboff, but they should, which is fantastic. Should they read that before Wedtopia or well, Oparala? No, because they'll never finish that. It's probably the one afterwards when you want to read a really smart person talking about the <laughs> themes that I've kicked around. But um, it's basically a Marxist analysis of the information economy and how our personal data is the natural resource that's driving um the the whole the whole wealth yep. of these um, big tech players. So, um, why is that the way it works? Why can't we just buy a service without having to give up all the excess data that we? Um, are oh, because as you say, that's their business model. Yeah, but right. right. But, so okay. why does it have to be? So it's just like the Gilded Age and the Rubber Barons. Like they they were they were running a monopoly racket to enrich themselves at the um, at the cost of other people. And at some point, people cottoned onto it and said, "Well, why is this going on? Let's do something different." So I'm not. So, you know, you, uh, so an active revolution might be turning off Facebook and finding different ways to connect. But you know what? Um, we're a long way away from there, and we haven't even started the conversation. No. Well, do you still use Facebook? I turned it off after I read Roger McNamee's Zucht, which is another great book about the way that that organisation operates. So, 
I, and look, I, so, so Pete, I reckon there's three levels. There is a role for government regulation. There is a real debate around the way organisations um, handle customer and member um, information. And I think, you know, what we need to see is a fourth plank of corporate social responsibility around the way that personal information is handled. And if we do that, and if we put some rings around it, then that data that we still own ourselves might be valuable. And if there's going to be a world driven by data scientists at least and data engineers at least we get a little bit of um that back Mm -hmm. um but then finally it's also about us just being aware of how we're being used and how hyper connectivity has a whole bunch of um downsides and you know we know that it's not great to eat hamburgers and milkshakes every day that we should do a bit of exercise but we haven't got a sense of what's a healthy digital life yet and Mm -hmm. i think you know i think that should be the next book (laughs) <laughs> really? How yeah. I gave up hamburgers. Yeah, well, how I gave up the net and learn to live or <laughs> well, something. I don't know, whatever you want to call me, it. But, you know. Um, you, what's your sense of the government? I mean, so we've had – I mean, it's been an extraordinary time, in particular going back to journalism a little bit. But, you know, we've had a Senate inquiry, mm. but these various inquir- uh, inquiries now about the police raids. We've now had the ACCC, Digital Platforms Inquiry. There's a lot pointing mm. to this debate. I mean, it's not like – this debate is underground anymore. It's very much in the public space. Your book's part of that. Well, how do you assess the mood of the federal government to do something about some of the things you talk I about? I was really heartened to see the way Paul Fletcher responded to it in a really thoughtful and um, measured way. I think, you mean the ACCC report? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, th- um, I think there is a recognition that there is a problem. Um, I think the ACCC report um, going down, it's effectively a saying, I think, that the rules of the old media should apply to new platforms or at least be adapted to some extent. They will come under incredible pressure from the big platforms to do the bare minimum and then they'll probably do something a bit less than nothing and it'll be a little step forward. What I think is interesting in this space is I don't think it's a traditional partisan issue. I don't see this as being left-right. I think there's elements about this which is around protecting our personal freedoms. Um, There are also elements about this about managing change in a conservative way. And then there's a bit about government regulation as well. So Mm. I I also thought when Morrison spoke about... um, the use of Facebook after the Christchurch massacres. I thought that's I'm going to back him in on that if he's prepared to have a go there. Um, it's just how far government goes and how far they're allowed to go and they won't go very far at all unless we as voters demand some action. I think there's a really fertile ground in public policy about protecting kids from this technology and the rights of kids, for instance, not to be subject to games and platforms that are using gambling algorithms to keep them on longer and mm. mess up their mind and beta test them to be lifelong consumers of this poison. So, you know, I think there's there's great retail politics. If you talk to any parent who's got kids who are going through this, we don't know what to do and we're being played and so are our kids. So Because the answer might not be as simple as turn it off. I mean, you know, right? It's these answers on these things are so embedded in our lives yeah and are so loved as, as i've said earlier by so many australians it isn't just well, a simple matter love of turn- or is there a Sorry, difference between addicted, love addiction. and mutual dependency well, it's a bit, or yeah addiction, okay you know because can you imagine not having a mobile phone you, 
you couldn't, right? You wouldn't be able to live without well, a mobile phone. I reckon, phone. The, and, and it's even like, can you imagine going for a walk by the water and leaving your phone behind rather than listening to a podcast, even if it's a podcast as good as Fourth Estate? Like the, 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 spa- I know, the <laughs> space for silence and just reflection is gone. We're never bored, so how can we be creative? So, yeah, turn it off is part of it and having a language about this thing. But for our kids, it's been totally integrated into their education as well so yeah. that – you know, most schools to save money have bring your own device. So they lay it back on to the parents yep. and then the kids are walking around with the world's most amazing library and the most toxic drugstore all in the one unit and we're expecting them to self-moderate and only take the good stuff. Now, yes, you can say you should parent better, but gee, it's hard. Oh, it's hard and, and, and you know, an ongoing – because it keeps changing as well, right? You know, yeah. it's, it's not as if it's one size whack-a-mole. fits all. It is whack-a-mole. It's whack-a-mole. Um, how's the book going? Do you get any um, early figures on it? Is it, is it? I'm told that it's been reordered into the fairly um, confined um, universe of books, short stores that um, stock searching polemics about the future of the <laughs> internet. But I think it's doing really well in the inner west and um, parts of Carlton. But um, – <laughs> I, look, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but, uh, but what but what's been really um, heartening is I, I sort of gone around and sort of done events in most capital cities, and people seem to me to be really up to the conversation. So yep. my challenge is to not write a book, but use the book as a springboard to do some meaningful things off the back of it, which is what I'm hoping to do. You want to give us a hint about those? Oh, I think there's a real hole for um, a consumer voice in the whole debate and so something that sounds a bit like a Centre for Responsible Technology or something mm. like that might be in the wings for later this year or next year. But, you know. Sounds good. All these things, you know, they're great on paper and then you've got to make them come to life. I was having, um, I was having Peter, a um, drink with a very, very senior um, figure who had a very disappointing um night on May 19 the other night who was saying, you know what they should have? They should have a website to check political facts so that they can, you know, <laughs> go, someone tried that. <laughs> yeah, I cited one of those. And yeah. it, yes, that's right. If only. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Peter, uh, for your time. I wish you all the best with Webtopia. Thanks. Man. Um, maybe there's going to be Webtopia 2.0 would be the logical next volume, <laughs> of course. Um, but look, I think you, we've, this is a start of a conversation. It's a conversation that I'd love to keep going with with you and others. And the idea of an institute for responsible tech use or whatever you want to call it sounds like a ripper. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, Pete. All right. Thank you. Uh, and thank you all for listening to The Fourth Estate. Uh, this edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Uh, make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics, the joys of the web, the dangers of the web, and a few things all in between. Uh, we'll be back very soon with more. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us uh, with on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. And many thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey, and thanks very much for listening. 